Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 153. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. Who is back again. We've got you in every week now in the run-up to Christmas, Joe. What a little little Christmas present this is. I'm next week as well. I've told you, I'm studying. I'm keeping (laughs) it fresh and keeping it in my mind. I've got, to, I've got to know everything. I've got to be ultimate book of knowledge for video games for next week. He's just sitting there looking over our shoulder. What, what's, what's that article about? What are you reading there? Yeah, what games much. have you been playing, boys? <laughs> because next week is, of course, the biggest one of the year. The one that we always look forward to. Uh, you guys admittedly with a bit of a nervous anticipation. The Retro Hour Annual Christmas Super Quiz is going to be back next week. Oh, oh it's so much fun. You know, we've had listeners say that they listen along with the quiz yeah. and kind of answer, and they probably beat us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, you know, I don't want to rub it in, guys, but you have lost two years in a row. Yeah. Um, Paul Drury and Ollie Wilmot are coming back next week. Now, we did actually talk about the possibility of swapping the teams up a little bit to make it a bit fairer. Um, <laughs> Paul and Ollie were outraged at that suggestion, so we're not well, going to do well, that. Well, we've got a guy from Retro Gamer there, and we've yeah. got a guy who runs his own video game quiz. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but then again, we have the two guys who actually host one oh, of the world's yeah, biggest retro gaming podcasts. Yeah. Come Absolutely. On. You know, so, on home turf this year. We, we need it. a win, boys. And I'll, I'll, just get, uh, we're bringing it. I'll just get Joe to scream some metal at them if they lose. <laughs> 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 like the Apex twin video where the hair all just goes back. Yeah. Yeah. So the Retro Hour Super Quiz is coming up next week. Um, I'm really working on the questions while you boys are just you know, taking it easy, rest up for the next week. And in fact, today, I didn't want to tax you too much. I thought we'd have a little look back on what an incredible year 2018 has been. Do you want a couple of little stats? Oh, yeah, totally. Okay. 51 episodes of the Retro Hour podcast released in 2018. My God. 54.5 hours of podcasting we've done. We've run over slightly. Yeah. <laughs> 11 events we've attended in the last 12 months. 11, that's crazy. We've travelled 2,640 miles wow. to get to these events. And also in 2018, we have doubled our audience on this podcast as well. That is awesome. And you know... It really has felt mad. It doesn't feel like we've been to 11 events, no. though. But, <laughs> yeah, we've been all over the place. When I think about it, yeah. my liver probably agrees that it has been 11 <laughs> events, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's been by far the best year of this part. It's just... Let round what, what a year 2018 has been. And we're already looking forward to next year as well. We've got some very big plans. Um, after a little break for Christmas, we're going to have a week off between Christmas and New Year. I think we need it. Uh, but listen, the only reason that we can make it this far is uh, just thanks to you guys, really. I mean, you know, if you weren't there supporting us every week, um, there'd be no point in us doing this show. Yeah, and this kind of best-of show is really for listeners who haven't kind of been listening all year or they may have missed bits or something. And we're just highlighting our favourite kind of little shows so they could maybe go back and go, oh. I missed that one. And we do have some people who are like, you know, still listening to like episodes we recorded three years ago. So they might skip forward and hear this as a little teaser. What's happened in 2018? Uh, listen, Neil, we love doing this show for you guys every week. I mean, there is something you could do if you'd like to uh, kind of say thank you to us, and that is support our sponsor. Now, this is absolutely amazing. I mean, The Economist have been amazing to us over the last couple of months, supporting the Retro Hour podcast. And the thing about it is, when you hear the name Economist, you often think, all right, it's going to be a publication about economics and finance. But we've learned, you know, since we started working with these guys, they cover so much in there as well. Yeah, and we're learning so much. Like last week, we were talking about the article about China, and yeah. we just didn't know that China was was the biggest video games industry in the world. And this week, we've got a really good book review, which is called Super Mario Management, which was basically about this book. And it's really interesting. I mean, they're talking about the fact that, you know, there is kind of a a stereotype of the archetypal gamer who is like, you know, a guy in his mum's basement eating pizza with the lights dimmed. 
bit overweight, wearing a string vest. <laughs> but they're actually saying, I mean, the author of this book um, that they're talking about in this article, um, she's kind of wanting to change this worldview. And they're talking about how, in fact, you know, video games are increasing our social skills rather than being played alone in, like, you know, quiet little bedrooms by yourself, especially the rise of online gaming and mobile games you can take anywhere. I was going to say, like, I completely agree with what, what, you know, this author's trying to get across. Like, they're not that stereotypical, like you say, nerdy kind of, like, living with their parents anymore. Like, mm. so many people you meet from different kind of, like, aspects of life and stuff are into gaming in some way or another. Uh, and it does, it does bring bring people together as well. It brings communities together. You guys, you guys met through gaming as yeah, well. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. I mean, you remember even stuff like the Pokemon Go craze, you know, where yeah. people are actually go meeting up in real world, like AR and that kind of thing coming in. I mean, it's a really good read. It's called Super Mario Management, the article. And if you want to check it out, um, we'd say get hold of your own copy of The Economist. Now, The Economist has been going for over 170 years. So, well, we said this last time we talked about The Economist, in this world now where you see so much false news around and yeah. you know you need something you can really trust and they help you kind of choose where you can stand on issues that matter to you so we've actually got a free copy of the economist for you now the economist is the smart guide to the forces changing your world and you can help out the retro hour podcast and get your own free copy of the economist in the post now all you got to do it's a print copy as well it'll come through your door Text the word retro and send that text to 78070. So if you're a free print copy of The Economist, text retro and send it to 78070 and you'll be really helping out the show. Right then, before we get into the clips, let's give another shout to people that we absolutely love who also help us do this podcast, and that is our loyal donators, who've been there since day one. You know, we haven't always got a sponsor on this show, so it is you guys that help us keep doing this every week and pay for the hosting costs and the websites and everything we need to do, pay for, you know, Joe's beard upkeep. So <laughs> it doesn't go on that. It's, it's a bit scraggly at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> you need more donations. Yeah, I do, yeah. <laughs> no, but listen, anything we get, of course, goes 100% back into the running of the podcast. And for making a donation via PayPal or cryptocurrency, you will get a shout in a future episode of the show. Just like this week, Carl Carras, Stuart Marshall, Paul Edwards, and Richard Pemberton, who all made donations into the running of the show. And you can do the same at theretrohour.com. What year it's been? Oh, it's been absolutely amazing. Like, honestly, some of the guests that we've got, I know we've previously had some good guests, but I really think we've topped it this year. Now, one guy that we've always been interested in, not only talking to, but, you know, I've followed his story since I was a kid. And this was uh, John Draper. Uh, he's got a nickname, Captain Crunch. And he was a guy who really, I mean, you know, when he was young, he worked with Steve Jobs and mm. Steve Wozniak from Apple, sold them their first blue box and kind of, you know, give them the money to start Apple. Which oh, is like really? the biggest company in the world now, and and he was <laughs> that's his uh, claim to fame. Yeah, yeah. quite. And, uh, he was working with blind kids, and a lot of the blind kids were kind of listening on these phone systems, and they'd hear the different codes, so they'd end up being able to hack the phone system. So this clip I've got is about John Draper from episode 129, and he's talking about him evading the FBI because they were after him after a mar article came out in Esquire magazine where they'd interviewed these blind kids about phone freaking and his name had been mentioned and then it got put into the public light and Oops. how how he avoided the FBI. Also, Esquire magazine did an article all about you in 1971, all about freaking. I mean, were you cautious oh, about doing that interview at first? I didn't even want to do the interview. I mean, I didn't even want to do it. Uh, the phone freaks contacted Ron Rosenbaum. I, I didn't want them to contact Rosenbaum, but they did it anyway. I mean, they're all they're 17 ir irresponsible blind kids 
They have no concept of what's cool and what isn't cool. So it was pretty much a, uh, it was pretty much kind of like a really bad situation. So I called Ron Rosenbaum back, and he started asking me some of the questions that the blind kids had, and I tried to clear him up on the thing. I said, look, Ron, I really don't want to be part of this interview. I, I consented to a little bit about it. I says, you know, just don't use my name, whatever you do. Uh, and uh, please respect my privacy and stuff like that because this is an illegal thing. And I don't want to get involved because if, if you interview me, I'm almost for certain going to get busted. So we, I talked to him for a while, and they started asking me questions. I confirmed a few things and some other things I set him straight. And it was probably about a 20-minute conversation with him. And then after, after we broke the conversation, things went, things went on as normal. Uh, I would say about five or six weeks later, the, uh, the Esquire article came out. I can remember what happened at the time. I was, I was taking a Chem 1A class in San Jose City College. And I went down to the 7-Eleven store and saw the Esquire magazine. I took it back to my car because I like to sit in my car and study. It's nice and quiet there. And because I had a nice fan and a table set up and stuff. So I was sitting there like reading the magazine. I says, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Well, that just ends phone freaking as we know it today. It just laid it right out there on the line, man. Gave the frequencies. I mean, they weren't exact, but they gave the whole concept. And anybody reading that article could probably figure it out. Was certainly did. And Waz, when he took the, the article was on his, on his coffee table in Jobs's, in Jobs's house. Waz pulled up the article and read it. And he thought it was fiction. And then after reading it for a while, he says, that can't be fiction. So he says, let's go down to the, uh, let's go down to the Stanford Library. And they got this book on Bell System Technical Journal. And the Bell System Technical Journal gave all the frequencies of the blue box. And Wise says, oh, my God, it's true. It's really a true article. I got to get a hold of this guy. And so it took Wise quite a while to find me, but he did. What were the differences and changes in this freaking scene after the Esquire article? Well, obviously, of course, the authorities saw it. And immediately what they did was they, they, had, they had known for a while that Denny and Jimmy and myself were on these conference calls. There's nothing they could do about it because it wasn't illegal. And I would never blue box from home, and neither would Denny and anybody else. So obviously they knew that I was able to blue box, and they tried to bust me on several occasions. In fact, I had just left the payphone three minutes before the authorities came to bust me, so I just got out of there just in time. This was part of the FOIA because we requested our, our FBI files. And this came out also, I think, in Phil Apsley's book, uh, uh, Exploding the Phone. Mm -hmm. So anyway, after, after that, things started really getting hairy. I was still living in Los Gatos. I wasn't doing anything on the phone at the time at all. Uh, all I was doing was just you know, going to school, uh, studying, and doing my thing. But, uh, but that was enough. That was enough to bust me because... What they did was they had a grand they, – they, they, they pulled in all these phone freak kids from San Jose. And all these phone freak kids in San Jose 
got had to testify before a grand jury. And one such person, Richard Caesar, had a uh, my phone number. And that was how they found me. They found me from a, my phone number being in his address book, Captain Crunch and my Las Gatas phone number, my regular home phone number. Were you looking over your shoulder all the time at that point then before you got busted? It must have been a nervous time. Well, after that, of course, uh, I, would, I, I would do some evasive driving techniques yeah. to evade being followed. I think Craig can tell you about that. We call it the Draper Maneuver. <laughs> I also had a modified receiver in my car that would pick up the FBI's radio frequencies and the police frequencies. It was kind of built into the car. And I had this converter device that would convert the UHF, which normally would go from 430 to 470 megahertz. And FBI's frequency was 412.683. I know that really well. Hmm. And so that was a frequency that I would tune to. And every now and then I would catch a little bit of chatter on that channel. Sometimes it would be scrambled, but I, if I'd see scrambled communication, I'd know it was the FBI because I know that they scramble their communication. That is amazing. I'm so glad that we, we got John Draper on. I remember reading about John like on Usenet and stuff back in the 90s and being fascinated by his stories. I mean, you often don't know quite how much kind of the illegal kind of freaking scene and that kind of tied in with the rise of the computer industry. Yeah, because they were the original kind of hackers, yeah. really. They kind of played with the systems, messed about with it, and learned how all of that stuff worked. And as as he said, he was with Steve Wozniak and yeah. Steve Jobs as well, who were also looking into that. And kind of, it's like Apple's first product was probably an illegal phone hacking device. <laughs> you know? They gave rise to the richest company in the world now. It's just yeah. crazy. So love talking to John now. Another interview that we did back in the summer that for me, was so good. I mean, I think back in the day, you either fell into two categories. It was Street Fighter 2 or Mortal Kombat. I like both. I like both as well, but (laughs) (laughs) if you had to pick one. Uh, You know what? Straight away, my mind went to Street Fighter. Yeah. But then, like, I was like, no, Mortal Kombat. But because my mind went straight to Street Fighter, I'm going to go for that just because I'm better at that, I think. I have thrashed you on Mortal Kombat before. Yeah, oh, yeah. I get thrashed by like nobody. <laughs> nobody thrashes me at Street Fighter, but I get thrashed on Mortal Kombat all the time. So that, I'm gonna go for Street Fighter. That but, was such a changing point, though, wasn't it? Mortal yeah. Kombat with like the yeah. digitized characters and the finishing moves and the whole kind of feel of it. Well, for me, I was always a Mortal Kombat kid. Yeah, and I remember first. I mean, with, in this little clip I'm gonna play here, I talk about my first encounter with Mortal Kombat. Yeah. And we actually were lucky enough to talk to Jake Simpson. Now, Jake actually worked for Midway, and he worked on stuff like the WWF WrestleMania mm. series. And then later on, he went to work for, um, you know, after that, he worked for Raven Software as well. Stuff like Hexen 2, those great FPS games. But also, I mean, I had to ask him about Mortal Kombat. And we got a great little insight into kind of the development and what gave Mortal Kombat some of its unique little quirks. Well, I remember for me, Mortal Kombat was one of my most vivid memories. Is like I think I was about 11 when that game came out, seeing it in the arcades. And I think I was awake like Pontins or something when I first saw it. And just kids were crowding around it all night. And we'd never seen anything like that. The digitized characters in the game as well and the blood. I mean, was that kind of Midway's golden egg when that franchise came out? I'd say so, yeah. Ed Ed had worked previously on a football game um, and he wanted to do something with big sprites and he had a uh, Street Fighter 2 in his office and he wanted to do a much, much faster version of Street Fighter 2 because Street Fighter 2 is a fairly slow game. It's a lot more strategic than, than MK is. MK was designed to be a button masher. Anyone could be successful and you could just walk up 
button mash and the guy would do things and the AI was so brain dead on the first few levels that you would be successful. So he had everything all combined inside of there. He had the success of, of, of a player playing it. You felt powerful. You the, the sound stuff, the Dan Forden sound stuff was very meaty and juicy. It felt, you know, when you had a good successful thump on somebody, it really felt good. I could tell you some other stories, but Ed would, would really kill me about um about what some of the audio actually in that game is, but I'm not going to go into that because that's just really bad news. Um, so, yeah, Dan Fulton's toasty, and that's because he used to come into Ed's office and play it, and he would say things. There's There was a whole bunch of other phrases that didn't make it into the game. I remember um, Eric Kincaid, uh, another artist who worked on MK3, I think it was, and he was he was all about the boo, boo, every time you, you know, he took somebody out. We were amazed, though, at some of the results or the, some of the commentary that came out uh, from Mortal Kombat, I remember one distributor rang up midway to ask if there was a rape scene in it. And we were sort of looking at each other going, it's a video game. Why would you put, why would you do that? Why would you do that? I mean, that's just, you know. But then again, I suppose, yeah, it was pretty well, violent for what it was. How did Midway kind of keep Mortal Kombat series fresh and, you know, come up with new innovations? Because I remember there was all, still the finishing moves in the first one as well. And babalities and friendship moves came in, didn't they? they yeah, that came, the babalities came, I think they were in three, actually. And, and some of those actually came from just reading message boards and seeing what other people were saying. People claiming to have seen things that certainly were not in the game. I mean, Error Macro... Error macro is just, but that was just code. That was a text message left in the code base um, because it was part of the compilation process. That's all it was. And then people were seeing this and going, oh, there's a new character called Error macro. Well, no, there wasn't. But there was in the second one because they picked up on it and went, yeah, right, why not? Um, you know, the the noob cybot, that's Boone and Tobias backwards. And some of it, like I said, the babalities and the, the animalities, they came purely from suggestions of seeing people talking about it. People saying they'd said they'd, they'd seen it. It wasn't there. So we thought, well, well stick it in. Why not? Well, I remember, sure. I remember at school, I mean, you kind of fell into two camps. I guess whether you had a Mega Drive or a SNES, but was um, was Street Fighter 2 seen as the main rival? So at school, oh, it was yeah. always Mortal Kombat or Street Fighter 2. No, Street Fighter 2. Although, I mean, I'll tell you a story about the original Mortal Monday. Was, was That was quite entertaining because, of course, my, um, Midway had made a big boob. They had sold the rights for all of their games to Acclaim, uh, to do ports for it was a generic deal it wasn't a very specific game by game they just sold the rights for like the next five years to all of the games that more that, that midway put out and of course mortal Kombat rolls along and claims rubbing their hands they went away they they got this software house i think it was iguana i think it wasn't sure to do a port and they did not do a line for line port what they did was they played the game and then tried to create their own version of it and it was not good. And I remember Ed being very, very upset, and he would not give approval for this thing to be released. But in the meantime, uh, a claim has gone away, spent millions on this whole Mortal Monday commercial. You remember that the kid in the street yeah. in the, oh, Mortal Kombat, you know, all that. Um, they, uh, they spent a lot of money, and they were all set to produce this and ready to go, and Ed would not release it. He would not sign his approval. They actually sent him a lawsuit on the Friday before the Mortal Monday to force him to actually sign approval so they could actually sell this game on the, on the Monday. He was that unhappy with what was, uh, what was put out there in the world. See, that is one thing I love about doing the show, that we find out stories like that, that you would never of a million years imagine that Mortal Kombat, Mortal Monday, that was like the biggest thing in video games back in the early 90s, came that close to actually almost not happening. I mean, I was just listening to that then and actually became really interested and I was just like, Okay, I need to go back and listen to that again because of, I was like, wait, I don't remember this part. <laughs> it was great, yeah, so interesting. I also remember 
kind of all the made-up cheats, you know, exactly what he was saying. People would be like, oh, there's an error code mm. here or there's this secret hidden character if you fight the boss ten times backwards or something. <laughs> Stuff that display didn't exist yeah. in the game at all. In between the uh, matches with the little codes where you press the buttons and stuff, like, if you do this, you get to be reptile and just never actually figuring it out. Because Mortal none Kombat, of it, was though, true. it had a lot of that about it, though, didn't yeah. it? Like, a lot of hidden kind of secrets and Easter eggs and stuff. So it was great to get that story. Now, we do cover a lot of different types of games on this podcast. Now, one that I know you love doing, Ravi, was um, a little chat about Westwood Studios that we did with Lewis Castle back in the summer as well. Um, talking about games like Dune, uh, Blade Runner, and. Command and Conquer, one of your all-time favourites. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Command and Conquer because Command and Conquer was like the kind of multimedia game for me when they had a disc. You know, Command and Conquer could have been released on disc, Mm. but it wouldn't have had the full motion video. It wouldn't have the thumping soundtrack. All the extra bonuses that you got with kind of CD that really turned it into a a real cool experience. And he's going to be talking about all of the amazing music in it by like Frank Kaplaki and how they source the actors. Kane, for God's sake, what a good enemy <laughs> Kane was. Well, let's have a listen back to him from episode 141. And let's talk about Command and Conquer. I mean, what a massive game. That, that really did yeah. change everything. And when approaching that game, I mean, how did you like cast actors and decide on graphics and um, also create sound effects as well? That must have been a big job. It was. Um, so the Command and Conquer was being built as the Swords and Sorcery game, and as we were going along, we we realized that we were going to hit the um, launch of the CD-ROM, 700 megabytes, which was, um, you know, almost 700 times as large as the biggest piece of media, 1.4 uh, megabyte disk. So uh, we had said, well, what are you going to do with all this? And I know that... Uh, you know, Joe was deeply involved in the in the game design and the balance, and uh, Brett Needy came up with a storyline around the uh, sort of biblical echoes of uh, of Cain and his his brotherhood of Nod. And so <clears throat> we said, oh well, what we should be doing Westwood, even back in Dune, had these little animatics to tell the story and set the stage. We should be doing these as full video, full motion video with audio. And the problem is, a single speed CD-ROM just doesn't have very much data throughput. It's 144 kilohertz, I think. It's really, really small. And so uh, we had to figure out how to do that compression. So we brought some people in from university that that understood some cutting edge uh, vector quantization that was going to go into some of the MPEG-3 stuff eventually. And then we built up on top of some of the compression algorithms I had written many years before. Um, that used a variety of uh, compression techniques. And I remember when when we were doing the initial um, videos, we had like a, a little dressing around the outside like a border, and Brett goes, it needs to be full screen. It needs to look like a, like a television screen or like you're watching a monitor. And, you know, we were explaining to him that, that how difficult it is because there's so little throughput. And he goes, oh, you're just being lazy. And this is kind of Brett's way to drive people. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, I mean, he was right. We got it to work. So um, once we knew that we could do the video, we had to fill all that. We had all these, uh, all this, all this time to fill, basically, you know, many, many minutes. And so um, our CG artists jumped into it and started using Max to do some stuff. Aaron Powell and um, did some amazing stuff with early units. I mean, today it looks pretty crude, but at the time it was truly like earth shattering. Um, and so we were just really all homegrown stuff. Uh, as far as the acting goes, there was a local theater troupe um, we hired. The guy who ran it uh, was Joe Kukin, and he was he's quite a talented actor, and he's a great director. Um, he now has a theater troupe in Vegas again. And Joe was interviewing for all the different roles, and we were using local talent because we couldn't afford to go out and get uh, Hollywood talent for the for the first um, – or the very limited amount for the first CNC. So we were using a lot of local talent and people who worked at the studio – 
and Joe directed everything, and, and he was the one who was saying, here's how Kane should be, here's how Kane should be. We went through many, many Kanes, and eventually we just were looking at the tapes, and Brett goes, why don't we just have Joe do it? He does a better Kane than anybody. So we asked him, and he said, uh, yeah, I guess I can act and direct. That should be okay. And that's what set the, the stage for him being, I think, one of the greatest villains in video game history, actually. <laughs> I think Kane was amazing. So um, all hats off to Joe. He was he was our, our driving force for all that uh, cinematic wonder. You know, I think you made an interesting point there about the fact that you went from developing for, you know, essentially, well, for floppy disks that were like a megabyte in size, a CD-ROM being like 700 megs, it must have felt like an infinite amount of space to fill. I mean, was that a bit overwhelming when you saw, like, we've got all this? Yeah, we didn't, didn't take us long. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we shipped Blade Runner on four CD-ROMs. So yeah. I guess I guess really it didn't, uh, didn't take us long at all. A couple of years later, uh, you know, we couldn't even fit on one. So, um, but no, I, I, the very first time we were looking at CDs, we were just just like, oh my God, this is this is massive. Um, and I don't think the first CNC even came close to filling it. Um, uh, certainly by by Tiberian Sun, we were using every every scrap we could find. Uh, part of the reason also was because the video had to be compressed down to that very slow bit rate, a very low bit rate of 144 kilohertz. So you can get quite a lot of uh, video on a on a 700 megabyte surface when you're only using 144k per per second. So so. Um, yeah, it was a huge amount of space and a massive, a massive ability for us to put a lot of graphics and stuff out there. They were quite slow, though, for, uh, single speed CD-ROMs. Nowadays, we 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 tend to forget that because uh, we don't even know the CD-ROMs are gone, right? So we're all it's all solid state now. Well, the music as well on Command and Conquer was absolutely fantastic, and you mentioned yeah. Frank was your in-house musician. Um, what was it like the first time you guys heard Hellmarch? Oh, amazing! That that show that that's why we put it on the on the trailers and everything else. And I think that was the one where people told me that they were and eagerly anticipating the next Command and Conquer game. And when they heard that it was Hell March, they got tingles. Because <laughs> it just it just it just hit every chord. And um, you know, I think Frank's um, you know he's he loves funk and he loves the hard hitting rock. And so he found this this great voice for CNC that I think has yet to ever been. Uh, and nobody's ever really come close to something like that, where I think it's almost like a unique music genre that was invented for a game. And it just fits so perfectly, this um, this feeling of uh, military meets modern age um, aesthetic. You were so fanboying over that interview, Ravi. Oh, totally, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it just makes you really think, when CD-ROM came out, Yeah. like how limited that technology was at first because people hadn't developed that video compression they hadn't developed ways of streaming from it straight away so you know all that kind of had to be created yeah people are doing shovelware and that just trying to fill the space i guess wasn't it but one thing about that era i mean obviously podcasting wasn't around in the early 90s the way that we found out about it was magazines or television shows now on this podcast you remember in our first year i think we brought dave perry from Games Master, kind of out of gaming retirement, we did his first podcast that he'd done. First time we talked about games in yeah. years. And now he's got his own you know, YouTube series and that up and running again. Great he's back into gaming. But also, the other big show that was on at the time was Bad Influence. Now, that was with Andy Crane and Violet Berlin. Now, Andy Crane had never done a podcast before. We've been asking him, because I mean, I work for the same company as Andy. So every now and then, I drop a little message. You want to come to this podcast and talk about it? Oh, I don't know anything about video games. I'll just embarrass myself. Like, Look, just come on. It's chilled out. When he got into the zone, oh, he was flying, wasn't he? 
He loved talking about it and reminiscing about those days. What was his knowledge like? Well, he's actually quite surprisingly good. Oh, really? I mean, he talks in this little clip here about... Because you've got to think, Bad Influence was on for four series. Mm-hmm. It ran from 1992 to 1996. So when it started, it was like Super Nintendo, Mega Drive. Yeah. By the end, it was N64 and that kind of thing. Mm. Massive change. Probably the biggest change in the 90s. Maybe even like, you know, in the history of video games consoles at home, that, mm. that kind of five years. So in this clip, he kind of talks about the the fast rate of technology development in that era. Think of all the systems that came out during those like four or five years of bad influences on TV. I mean, you started with the Mega Drive and the SNES and by the end it was like PlayStation and N64, or Ultra 64 I think it was called at first. I mean, did it feel like it was such a rapidly changing industry and was it quite hard to keep up with it all sometimes? I was kept up to speed by a very good research team. Now, remember, I refer you to our previous remark. I am not a gamer, I wasn't a gamer, and I'm not a gamer. I don't have a console anymore. I think there might be a PS2 in a wardrobe upstairs from one of my girls. I've only got, and again, I only have daughters, and I'm sorry to go down that route. These days it's different. But boys were gamers and girls weren't when my children were younger. They're all in their 20s now. So I didn't have um, the gaming experience at home. I didn't have a son going, Dad, can I have an Xbox? Dad, can I have this? Dad, we'd sell the whole thing as sort of faded away from me. But they would show me what the latest technology was and I'd be like, wow, that's amazing. You know, the first PlayStation coming out and the disc going in and, oh, it's wonderful stuff rather than the cartridge. Graphics getting better and better and better. And these days, I mean, you know, you watch Click or Swipe on Sky or the BBC. The games are phenomenal, aren't they? Mm. Absolutely phenomenal. I just wonder whether I've left it too late to dip back in. You see, I think if I got back in, I'd be so far behind. The, you know, the last game, <laughs> the Street Fighter game, Street Fighter 2, I think, you know, you look at the graphics on that and you think, that's moved on a bit now, hasn't it? I'm not sure whether I'd be any good at anything like that anymore. <laughs> My daughter plays, she's got a boyfriend who's got, uh, would it be a Switch? Would that be right? Nintendo, yeah. Yeah, she's, and, she's, and he's got a PS, whatever the latest one is, and so they plug it all in and they play online. Playing online, can you imagine, back in the day? You know, we did a piece on Bad Influence about how you could make an international phone call for the price of a local call. Because, because we were talking about VoIP, um, you know, uh, using the internet for, for voice conversations. But obviously, back in, even then, back in the day, you had to pay for the internet dial-up at home. And your friend in America would have to pay for the internet dial-up then. But that was the idea of put a headset on, talk to your computer, your computer talks for free on the internet to another computer, and they, you could have a, you know, you've made a local call, but you're making an international conversation. Now you put your headset on and you're talking to kids all over the world and you're all playing the same game or you're working as a team on something. I think it's brilliant as long as it's not all you do. Well, I wonder what Bad Influence would be doing now. Bad Influence would be defending children who play games but encouraging them not to play them all the time. Remember, video gaming was at one point seen as, you know, the, the thing that was going to ruin children's lives forever. And it still gets blamed for a lot of things, doesn't it? Screens, or more, perhaps more generically, screens are blamed for ruining children's lives. Um, but video gaming particularly, um, oh, they're all playing these games, they're all shooting people, they're all going to grow up to be mass murderers and psychopathic killers. Hey, guess what? They haven't. The idea, we, we would defend gaming on Bad Influence as well. Sometimes when the newspapers had headlines about it, we would, I would hold up the newspaper and say, look, you may have read this well, and then we would, you know, put our side of the story, put the gaming industry side of the story, because it isn't, it's just a leisure activity. Um, and as long as you moderate it and don't spend 24 hours a day, 365 days a year in your bedroom with a headset on, 
it's just another way of having of spending your money and having enjoying your leisure time. I think it's a fantastic pursuit. Well, you mentioned about technology then. You know, the biggest technology probably in history uh, came around during the time that Bad Influence was on air with the rise of the internet in the mid-90s. I mean, did you kind of see a change there and did you really have an idea how big the internet was going to be? Yeah, oh, man, if I'd known that, I'd have bought shares in Facebook and Google. <laughs> uh, you know, wouldn't we all? No, I don't think... I don't think, I don't think people at the... Who, were there at the outset of the internet realised quite what it was going to become. I, I, I don't think anybody... We knew that computers were going to be part of our lives in terms of, as we referred to earlier, the technology of making life easier, faster, better, slicker, controlling things. Now we've got, you know, fridges that will order milk for you when they run out. You know, you can drive home and think, oh, the central eating's not on, tap your phone and switch it on. That's what we thought. The social aspect of the internet... I'm not sure anybody really predicted that. I thought maybe people... It was called originally, wasn't it? The Information Superhighway. <laughs> yes. So it was going to be like a reference tool. I think people thought it was going to be like a massive Wikipedia. But it's become so much more. But nobody knew that then. Absolutely not. You know, that you could watch TV on it, that it would have social, social media. You know, we were excited by texting. You know, so... Social media is just, I don't think anybody realised quite how massive that was going to become. We certainly didn't. We had no sense of it at all. What I loved is you can still hear the excitement in his voice as well when he talks about it. I was going to say, considering he said to you he knew he was, oh, I know Naffle and yeah. all this, <laughs> he knew he knew a few bits and bobs and he seemed pretty passionate about it. So Yeah, which after all this time is great. And I mean, at the end of the interview, he said to us off air, didn't he? He goes, actually, lads, I really enjoyed doing that. Yeah, because yeah. he was really into technology anyway, yeah. wasn't he? So he, he, he's he got a lot of stuff that he's remembered and then suddenly going, ah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that was a great episode. If you didn't check it out, uh, episode 120, all about the backstory on Bad Influence. Now, coming up in the next few minutes, we're going to hear stories from Activision, uh, Bullfrog. Do you remember that episode we did with Glenn Corpus talking about oh, yeah. Populous? A bit about Kevin Mitnick as well, the world-famous hacker. Now, before we do that, obviously, Christmas is here. Everywhere you go, the Christmas songs are playing in the shops. The adverts are on TV. <laughs> Best thing about this time of year, though, sitting at home, the fire on, playing your favourite video game, beautiful drink in your hand. Oh, can't beat that, can you? Definitely. Maybe a... Beer? <laughs> <laughs> what about these? Two words that are going to make your ears prick up. Free beer. There we go. Now, this is thanks to our very good friends at beer52.com. Now, think of this as our little Christmas gift to you. As a listener to the Retro Owl podcast, we would like to thank you for checking us out in 2018 and for your support as well by giving you a free case of craft beer. Now, all you've got to do to claim your free case Open your phone right now, open your web browser on there, tap in beer52.com slash retro. So that is beer52.com slash retro. And you will get some special beers for free in for Christmas. Now, Beer52 is the world's most popular monthly craft beer discovery club, searching out incredible and exclusive small batch craft beers from the world's greatest breweries and bringing them back to their members as well. I've always wanted to be part of, like, a beer club. I always think it sounds really cool. Yeah, it sounds really nice. And, like, some of the beers that they've got, oh, they sound gorgeous. Like, um, the Keller Pilsner, you know, you know what Keller is. It's the yeah. German for cellar. So <laughs> it's the kind of beers from down the cellar. Well, the thing at the moment is they actually do, like, a different country or different theme um, every month. At the moment, they're doing West Country. Uh, West Country Road Trip Month, it's called. So oh, essentially, nice. it's the best beers from, like, Bristol and that kind of area of the country, too. And they offer... 
something for everyone. You know, if you're into dark ales or lighter beers, uh, you can kind of pick what's in your packs as well. So not the kind of beers that you'll find in your local supermarket. And you also get a 100-page Ferment magazine in the box as well if you're interested in the story of beer and you want to learn more as well. So you can get your free case of beer. All you have to do is pay the £5.95 postage, that's all, and you will get eight craft beers sent to your house next day delivery the ferment magazines included too they'll even put a couple of snacks in there as well so. that's awesome snacks and, beer. snacks and beer what can you do <laughs> is there anything better at Christmas time no. come on so all you've got to do to claim yours is head to beer52.com forward slash retro there's no minimum commitment you can just take the free case if you want try the beers see what you think if it's not for you then you can pause or cancel at any time but don't miss out on this chance to get the beers in for the festive season head to beer52.com forward slash retro let's get into more of our best moments from 2018 you love Michael Laurie, didn't you? That was a great episode. Early internet adventures. Yeah, so Michael's like a British computer security and kind of social networking expert. He he originally started by um, registering lots of sites like Harrods.com for himself. Cybersquatting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cybersquatting. He was one of the original cybersquatters. But Kevin Mitnick is probably the most notorious hacker in the world. Yeah. And he... Um, got put in solitary confinement in America. This was a massive case with the FBI, and he was actually wiretapping the FBI at the time. Um, Michael ran a server, and Kevin was actually spying on Michael. Crazy. And, and Michael was spying on Kevin, spying on him. <laughs> so <laughs> here's the clip. Obviously, security was a lot more rudimentary back then. I remember reading stuff about, like, you know, Robert Schifrin's hack on Prestale back in the 80s, and obviously the uh, the famous Kevin Mitnick, um, had an account on one of the first public access ISPs. I mean, were you actually on the same um, ISP that he was? Did you actually have any interaction with Kevin? <laughs> um, I've known Kevin for a long time. He, I used to work with a guy called Neil Clift, who Kevin was obsessed with. And rightly so, Neil was a brilliant VMS hacker, probably one of the best hackers ever. Had high-profile jobs for Microsoft and Google. They poached him for vast amounts of money in the end. But he hides away in the background. But Kevin was obsessed with getting his hacks for VMS systems. And so I dealt with him before his first arrest. This was in the 80s. And then he reappeared. I, I think he was on the run at this point. I think he'd skipped all his bails and everything. And he was on the run because the U.S. Marshal Service was after him. So he must have been convicted. And he was using HiCom, which was, again, my machine, because it was a public access VMS machine. Now, I had chatted to him, and I gave him a legal account at one point on the condition that he didn't do anything bad. That lasted a day. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he was not too happy with me for removing him from that. I tried. I wanted him to go legal, but no. Um, I was working with Deck at the time anyway. Um, I made it fairly clear to him that I was after him. I was going to try and catch him. But we had this kind of standoff. Not friends, but not massive enemies situation. Um, one of the systems managers at Loughborough then discovered... He was looking at disk space and noticed that disk space was vanishing. And he discovered that Kevin was logging everything I did, so every screen, every key press on one of the Unix machines, which I used to get to HiCop because it had screen on it so I could run multiple sessions. So 
we had this interesting situation where Kevin was monitoring me. If we let him know that we'd caught him, he'd stop using it. So we had him in a place where we knew he was, and he didn't know that we'd spotted his monitoring. So we started monitoring him at the network level before the machine. So we were looking at his literal every IP packet. I had to go on for a year being monitored by both the FBI and Kevin. So everything I was doing was being monitored, recorded into federal evidence. And then Kevin was using anything he could find that I was logging on. So I couldn't tell him or let him know that I'd done it. So I still had to log on to machines with my passwords. I still had to talk to people privately. I still had to do all my work with him watching everything I did. I would occasionally, if I wanted to do something like work secret, I'd log on to a different machine. But basically, I lived my life being monitored by the FBI and Kevin for a year and a bit. That was so weird. Well, how did you feel when Kevin eventually got caught? Quite pleased. Uh, the story of how he got caught has been turned into some weird urban folklore. Always makes it seem like one person caught him when there was a huge team following Kevin, monitoring everything he was doing. I don't hold any grudges on I mean, I'm glad he was caught. Um, I do talk to him now. Again, we're not friends, but we're not enemies. We, we chat occasionally. You must have had a healthy respect for like him, his technical ability then. I don't want to be mean about him. Um, <laughs> he's, he was not a brilliant hacker, but he was a fantastic social engineer. Mm. Um, you've got to give him credit for that. His skills in social engineering were second to none. And he... We watched him get extra-extra numbers out of BT in seconds. He could just <laughs> call people up and turn them to his will in the, just by phoning them up and pretending to be other BT engineers. He knew the lingo. He knew how to talk to them. He was just brilliant at getting information out of people. And, yeah, can't fault him for that. I think he's probably... Neil Clift might be the best hacker in the world, but Kevin Mitnick is probably the best social engineer. You can tell the clips at Ravi Pick, can't you? This, uh, the, the underground of computing. <laughs> yeah. It's all like this guy was getting chased by the FBI. He liked all of them. <laughs> but I mean, that is one thing I do love about doing this show. I mean, when we came up with the idea, we said we don't just want to do video games. Because yeah. we love games, but we also we love computers and technology as well. Yeah, and kind of these guys are the absolute pioneers. Like all these scams that go on online now and all of these kind of people ringing up and faking to be people. You know, Kevin was the one that started it all. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, today, though, security on computers and systems is more important than ever, isn't it? And yeah. The fact these guys found those early, early vulnerabilities, it's interesting to find out those kind of techniques they it's use. thanks to them, we put sellotape over our laptop cameras. <laughs> <laughs> Even Mark Zuckerberg does that, doesn't he? Yeah. You see pictures of Facebook's office. It's funny. Now, let's have a little talk about Bullfrog. They're a legendary company. And earlier this year, we were joined by Glenn Corpus, um, you know, he actually listens to the podcast, which I thought was great. You know, we're massive fans of Bullfrog. Uh, games like Syndicate. You were a huge Syndicate oh, fan, Oh, massive you? Syndicate fan. But if you also look at the latest stuff that they did, like Magic Carpet yep. and Dungeon Keeper, that was really pioneering stuff. And we got loads of stories about those games. But I think the bit that I'm going to play here is um, when he's talking about kind of the development of Populous. And obviously that was such a big game. Really one of the, probably the first God kind of game, wasn't it, Populous? Yeah. And the fact that he talks about how much luck was involved and how close that game really didn't, almost didn't come to like fruition. So this is really interesting. Glenn Corpus talking about Populous. Populous became, you know, such a big game and groundbreaking in so many ways. I mean, it's often credited as being the first kind of, you know, real God game. So where did that kind of idea and concept of the game come from then? 
But this is the thing which I, I really love about populism. Why it's, it reminds me, oh, slightly arrogant way of putting it, but it reminds me of, um, of Rubik's Cube. Erno Rubik wasn't trying to make a puzzle. He was trying to make a, a weird piece of engineering that, where the corners, you know, managed to hang on in a spooky way that, you know, you know and it just turned out that once you stuck the stickers on, it, it turned out to be, you know, possibly the best puzzle ever. And Populous was a similar thing. I was just messing around with, with this landscape. I didn't know what was going to happen. And um, <clears throat> very quickly, in that, in that initial three-day demo, when it was just a landscape which you could click on and modify, it, you know, it sort of became obvious that flat land was going to become the currency. That was all Peter's doing, the way that, the way that, that, that actually worked out. But it was it kind of fell out of the system you know it wasn't designed and quite how we ended how we ended up there with um you know, this sort of indirect control i suppose it's a bit different from other god games because it really you know it really it really was very indirect the control well it's amazing how you could manage to fit such a huge world on like you know one floppy disk and uh the kind of generation of the landscapes led to having around 500 levels yeah well th- <coughs> that was an interesting thing as well because the game was basically multiplayer only for, for the longest time, I mean, we had a, we had a serial cable run, running between the, the ST and the Amiga, which we initially used for file transfers. Because at the time we started it, you couldn't really read an ST disc on an Amiga, and you definitely couldn't read an Amiga disc on an ST. <clears throat> so we literally had like terminal programs sending files across, you know, across across this null modem cable. And we also used a null modem cable for playing Stunt Car Racer. Populous the game. What we used to what we used to do was we'd work on it all day, and we'd stop work about seven in the evening and then we'd play at multiplayer um for about three hours and then peter would use that uh, to inform how how the computer player should work now the gameplay was multiplayer only and the single player game um was a computer opponent that, that was designed to beat me and there were a bunch of variables that you could you could set like you could say the computer's allowed to raise a lower land, do swamps, do earthquakes, do volcanoes, floods, whatever. And also the computer would have a speed, like how, how often it could, it was allowed to think. So like it, on an easy level, it might only be allowed to think every 20, 20 ticks of a game. You know, on the on its hardest levels, it would be doing it, be thinking every tick. So you, you literally had this thing that it's in Populous, in the, in, in the release Populous, there's a mode called Custom Game, which is probably no, hardly anyone would have ever played. But that was the only game that we that, that there was in it. But luckily, the producer at Electronic Arts was a guy called Joss Ellis, who'd also been he'd also been the producer on um, on the game we did for Firebird on Druid. But when he was at Firebird, he'd also worked on the Sentinel. And I don't remember exactly it happening this way because I was also a big Sentinel fan. Maybe me and Josh got to, Josh got talking about Sentinel, but we ended up sort of ripping off the way that the level progression worked in that. If you remember, in yeah. Sentinel, you'd sort of finish a level, and then the number of um, points you finished with was the number of levels you skipped. So there were ten thousand levels in 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 the Sentinel, and Populous basically worked the same way. You'd skip some levels, and so if so, like just like Sentinel, if you couldn't do the level you were on, you could go back and play the previous one by entering the code, and then finish it with more points, and you could skip the level that you just had trouble with, and exactly the same mechanism worked, you know. Um, and the file, there was just a text file with um, 500 lines in it of, of I don't think, no, it was only, I think it was actually only 100 lines of different level settings. And each of those constituted five of the levels in the game. And um, that file was knocked together in about 
two days, including all the tuning, um, uh, right at the last minute of the uh, development. So if that hadn't got in, I don't know what people would have been playing because they weren't playing it multiplayer and they weren't playing custom games. So uh, it was another piece of luck on that game. Yeah, because I, I was reading that um, there was a, a cheat that was made so that you could actually get to the end of Populous and see what, what the end was like and then you realised that there was no end had actually been put in there. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there wasn't. No, you could Basically, the names of the levels were the codes to get in and you could kind of guess them because... It was. It wasn't. You know, there was. It wasn't exactly done with. You know, crypto strength security. It was just sort of a sort of simple little checksum. And um, yeah, you could. And, and so you, you could probably play about ten levels, guess what the, the the parts of the level names were, and then try sticking a few of them together at random. And and like you might get one that worked. You know, so um, it was. Just, it was strange that you could get away with things like that. But the whole the entire level progression was about two days work. So there was no level design in it or anything. It was just a bunch of numbers to feed the fractal generator and the and and stuff like that, and a bunch of flags to say which you know, which of the effects each you know you or the computer opponent were allowed to use. So crazy when you hear that a game like Populous was essentially blagged. It's yeah. like, you know, I just love getting stories like that. Now, in episode number 134, um, we did one that you, Ravi, I know you you were a big fan of this episode. I loved it as well. We had David Brevik on the show. We're getting the story of Blizzard. Yeah, so David Brevik, he was absolutely amazing. He did Diablo, which was one of the really good titles that kind of went from turn-based gaming to real-time gaming. And that kind of changed the world of RPG games, you know, especially Warcraft later on becoming kind of real-time gaming. And this is a clip where he talks about his resistance to real-time gaming until he actually tried it, and then he's like, oh my god, that's amazing. So how controversial was the uh, real-time phone call <laughs> you got, and uh, kind of how divided was the office whether we should, uh, whether you should have a turn-based Diablo or a real-time version? Right, yeah, it was, uh, it was incredibly controversial, mainly because I, uh, of me. Uh, uh, and so I, I, I loved the turn-based feel that we had, uh, not only that we had, but that these types of games had like rogue and Morian Angband, things like that, uh, NetHack, all of these games had really great turn-based mechanics and tension. And I wanted to capture that, uh, with Diablo. And, uh, so they called up and blizzard south you know and they had done kind of this hey we're taking strategy stuff we're making it real time we think that you should do the same thing with diablo take it you know from this turn-based thing to a real-time thing and we were doing our our it was turn-based but it was kind of a complicated turn-based like it wasn't my turn your turn my turn your turn it was it different turns took different amount of times we can call it you know tenths of a second or you can call it frames or whatever you want but like you know moving diagonally took 1.4 seconds and horizontally or vertically took one second and uh and swing your sword may only take like 0.2 seconds or whatever it was you know and the, so the it was turn-based but it was kind of like there was different weights to the the actions uh and they said well you know it's really I, I, we really think that you should try it we think that uh, it'll make a big difference, and and I just really didn't want to lose the uh, that kind of tension. There was nothing 
more tense uh, in my life than the experience of doing this turn-based combat where I've been playing this character. All of these games, these Rogue and Mori and Angban stuff were uh, – were you know permadeath games so you you died in the game your character died in the game that was it the game was over and you lost everything and so uh you know making these turns and you're getting down to the end you find yourself in a stuck situation you're like oh my god i'm running out of time this is a disaster what do i do uh and uh you know you would get up from the computer you'd walk around the lab it's like Oh my God, I'm going to lose like this two weeks of work on this character. It's the highest level I've ever gotten. I can't believe this. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in deep, deep doo-doo at this point. And, the, the, uh, and so you would plan out all of these things and look at your equipment. And like there was this intense period of time where you're kind of agonizing over which moves you were going to do. And that, that's, that in, inevitably you died. Uh, you know, it was very sad and your character was deleted and you didn't play for three days as you calmed down and then you come back and play again. Uh, but I loved that feeling. I loved the intensity of that, of that. And I thought real time is just not going to have that, right? You're not going to have this moment where you're like, oh my God, I'm about to lose everything here. Uh, I've got to, I've got to really think this out. And, uh, is there anything I can do to kind of give myself the best odds I can of, of succeeding? And so I didn't want to lose that kind of spirit. And, and so I was very adamant that I did not want to do this. And so we started talking about it as, as a group and the office and the, you know, people started hearing more and more about it. And, and everybody, pretty much everybody in the entire office was in favor of changing it into real time or at least giving it a try. Uh, and, uh, and eventually it, you know, I was, I was still pretty stubborn about the entire thing, but I was democratic. And so we got together in the, in the kitchen and, and everybody got a vote and we voted whether or not that we wanted it to be real time, uh, or, or turn-based and, uh, and the vote was overwhelming 80% plus of <laughs> people that wanted it to change to, uh, real time. And so I said, okay, well, we'll give it a try. Uh, and then, so I called up Blizzard and we were still kind of work for hire at this point. You know, they, we had signed the contract to do Diablo and we weren't Blizzard North at the time and, and, uh, and said, well, yeah, we can, we can do this, but it's going to take a lot, a lot of time and work and stuff. And so we need a little extra money to, to make this <laughs> massive change. And so they agreed to a, to a little bit more money. And, uh, and I said, okay, well, we'll do that. And so, uh, we, I came in uh, the office on Friday and I said, okay, I'm going to, we're going to make this big change. Everybody come back, everybody go home we'll come back on Monday and we'll have it, uh, we'll have it running. And so, uh, uh, or at least have a prototype or whatever, but there's nothing for anybody can do while I make this massive change. So everybody left and then, and then I completed the work in like an afternoon in a couple hours and, uh, and changed it from real, from, from turn-based to real time. And, and again, I can, I, I've said this many times, but I can, I can still picture it. It's like one of the most clear moments of my career where I, uh, I was playing this warrior and I clicked on a skeleton. I walked over, he like walked over and he bashed the skeleton. As soon as I, you know, I clicked, he walked over and he smashed the skeleton and it felt so good. I was like, oh my God, it was, (laughs) it was, it was incredible. The sensation, the experience was again, it was like, you know, the heavens parted and the angels sing and like the light shone down into the office kind of thing. I mean, it was like, oh, oh my God, this is just so incredible. It was it was uh, it was just night and day 
obviously, how could I have ever thought <laughs> that turn base was the right thing? I instantly had flipped. It was obvious that this was going to be a winner. This was something magical. And uh, and so the, from that moment on, we we never looked back and, and uh, kind of changing it from turn base to real time was uh, was just an incredible <laughs> Uh, stroke of luck and genius that uh, that that made it uh, something that makes Diablo stand out forever. Imagine if you didn't have that revelation, though. Yeah, it's it's, <laughs> it's mad to see the kind of development and all the points that we've talked about, even on this tiny show, like the development of CD-ROM and the development of hacking and stuff like this. It's it's crazy. It's a big show. Yeah. <laughs> Now, movie games. You got any favourite movie games? Games based on movies. Games based on movie. Movie. Um, there's a couple. The Lord of the Rings games. Yeah. Uh, they come to mind straight away. Had them on the GameCube. Um, oh man, there's probably a couple. A couple more, but that's literally that was the only. <laughs> as soon as you said it, that was like the first one was like, "Whoom!" Yeah, Lord of the Rings. Batman I Returns. I always yeah, remember that, that one. one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, generally the movie licenses didn't have a reputation of being kind of very strong games at first, did they? You can think uh, of, of lots of crap ones. Yeah, yeah. Straight easily. away. Yeah. In the 8-bit era, there was definitely really bad ones. Later on, they got to stuff like Lion King and stuff yeah, like that. Aladdin they got a lot yeah, better. Yeah. One of those earliest ones, I mean, we did an episode uh, back in episode number 123, and that was with David Crane. Now, David, obviously, he was a guy behind Pitfall. Yeah. legendary game and we learned all about Activision as well you know Activision kind of came out of Atari and um, kind of the, the working ethics that they didn't like at Atari mm-hmm. set their own company up to this day Activision is still one of the biggest mm-hmm. publishers in the world but he also gave us a story about how they got the Ghostbusters video game license <laughs> which was a very interesting 8-bit game and we kind of find out a little bit because it was very different yeah. I was a Ghostbusters fan as a kid. You're loved a huge it. Ghostbusters oh, fan. I'm one of the biggest Ghostbusters nerd you'll ever meet. But then, playing that game, I was like, well, it doesn't really fit in all that much with the movie and the TV show. So I had to ask him a bit about the development of it, and we got some quite interesting replies from him. It's not unusual, um, even then, for companies with properties to go around to the video game companies and say, hey, why don't you make a game about you know Cabbage Patch dolls or whatever? And movies were kind of the same thing. But um, making a video game about a movie in the, the era was extremely challenging. When, when we uh, started looking at possibly doing a Ghostbusters video game, our, our licensing people had talked to their licensing people and knew that the license was available. And so um, Tom Lopez, who was the guy doing that, um, came into the lab one day and he said, I got a script for this movie. Uh, it uses a bunch of the Saturday Night Live guys, and it could be really funny, and um, you never know. I mean, you try to take a license before a movie comes out, you have no idea if it's going to be a flop or not. But uh, we all read the script and said, yeah, this looks pretty fun. But we were very late in the process. The movie was about to come out, or I don't know if it had come out yet, or it was really very close. And so it takes you know a year to make a game, and... I said, you know, if we make a game today and that movie comes out, is anybody going to even remember the name Ghostbusters a year from now? Of course, we shouldn't have had to worry about that. I mean, obviously, it became a cult hit. But uh, with any property, you have to ask that question and worry about it. So nobody had taken the license. Um, We were probably the the company's first choice because of Activision's success. But... Um, you know, the question is, do you take this license? 
And I basically stepped up and I said, you know, if, if it takes a year to make a game, I'd say no. Let's not do this license. But I have a game that is two-thirds of the way done. And I could take that game and redesign it and retask it and put it in the Ghostbusters universe and, you know, share some of the interesting, the fun things they have, like the, the, um, the crossing the streams and whatever else, the capturing ghosts and traps and such. So I took a game which its working title was Car Wars, which had a car. It had an in-game economy where you would buy weapons to put on the car and you would drive around and get from point A to point B, then arrive at places in the city and, and have a fight and whatever. And I turned the car into a top view of the ghost mobile. Um, I changed the items in the store from weapons to traps and ghost vacuum had to make up something right <laughs> and uh, anyway retask the thing so that i was able to create a game in a reasonable period of time and it came out you know while the game or the movie was still popular and was very successful so i remember getting that game when the the real ghostbusters cartoon started a couple of years later and that you kind of answered quite a lot there because i did wonder why there was stuff like the ghost vacuum in the game that wasn't in the the movie and the the cartoon for example but I guess that kind of makes sense. If, I, I imagine you didn't see the movie until the game was pretty much almost done. Right. We had the script. Um, we always would have at least have the script so we know kind of what's going on. But, uh, yeah, we didn't have any imagery from the movie or whatever. And, um, you know, I just created that driving sequence where vacuuming up a ghost was something that you could do. Um, you know, it really wasn't – Whenever, you, in my theory, you don't make a movie game – um, just be the movie and make it interactive. Basically, to be successful, you need to create a game that would stand alone whether it isn't tied into the movie license or not. So I would think of what, what would be fun to do if you're driving along and there's ghosts trying to maneuver over and suck them up in a vacuum was just a fun thing to do. And it just happened to be that it was the Ghostbusters car and they were ghosts, whereas they could have been you know, something else that you were vacuuming up. So really, the, the theory is not look at the movie and try to take elements out of the movie and make them interact with each other as much as look at the universe that the movie is in and using some imagery from the movie, if you can, um, make a game that's fun to play. Um, you know, that's my theory, my philosophy of the best way to go about making a movie. See, to me, that was a game that I played when I was about, like, what, six years old? That's one of the reasons I love doing this podcast, that we can chat to the kind of the people who shaped our childhood, really. Yeah. Which is like, you know, not so weird. I never thought I'd get the chance to chat to the guy who made the Ghostbusters video game. Well, when you were seeing those credits on the screen, you're kind of like, ooh, who is this distant person? And now you know all the secrets. <laughs> I'll be talking to him on a podcast in 30 years. You know, I never thought of that back in the day. But, I mean, that was just a little snapshot of the Retro Hour podcast in 2018. If you've enjoyed these clips today, because I know people dip in and out of episodes, don't they? Uh, go back and check them out. We'll have the full links to all the episodes in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. 
Next week, guys, when you come in the studio, we'll have some Christmas decorations up. There'll be mince pies and selection boxes later. I was about to say, there better be some bloody mince pies. <laughs> Maybe even some booze to uh, hopefully celebrate with after you win hopefully. The, the quiz next week. And we've got we'll a new see. quiz mistress as well. So. We have. Your yeah. missus is coming in, isn't she? Oh, yeah. really? I was about to say, I need to butter up uh, Dan's mis- uh, mistress as she's been mistress. the... Uh, <laughs> mistress. 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 <laughs> or my wife, take your Your pick, wife, yeah. whatever. Either, either of them will um, do. <laughs> but no, we'll be going for Ravi's then. All right, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There is a theory. Prepare for shouting. That's all I'm going to say. I did have this theory the other day. I thought, if you guys win, maybe Samantha's been artificially mogging you down. (laughs) Well, well, don't get me started on that. That's a whole new kettle of fish. (laughs) But we shall see next week because it is going to be the Retro Hour annual Christmas Super Quiz. I want cheesiest Christmas jumpers. Always. You've got a week to revise now. Just go and look at everything to do with video games. We're going to be called... Team Phoenix, because we're rising from the ashes. <laughs> Jesus, we didn't agree on that. <laughs> you guys sort that out off air. Next week, though, we'll be here for the Christmas Super Quiz and our final episode of 2018. Thank you so much for your support in 2018. It's meant a lot to us. Long may it continue, and we'll see you next week for the annual Christmas Super Quiz. Ciao. Cheers.